Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Do you know where your favorite food comes from? We all eat, yet people are often disconnected from where their food comes from and how it gets produced. We may not realize the harmful impacts of what we eat on the environment and our climate. But agriculture can also be a powerful tool to protect our environment and mitigate climate change. Through implementation of sustainable best management practices, farms across the world have the power to make a big impact. In Tennessee, Caney Fork Farms is a leader in carbon farming and other practices to address the climate crisis. In this River Talk, the Cumberland River Compact Sustainable Agriculture Program Manager, Nicole Gurdy, joins Renan Sokoloff, the Vegetable and Agroforestry Manager with Caney Fork Farms to discuss their innovative practices and approaches and how these approaches can be scaled across the U.S. Well, we're here with Renan Sokoloff today from Caney Fork Farms, which is out in Carthage, Tennessee, right? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. And that is the Caney Fork watershed. Well, just to warm us up, can you tell us a little bit about what your morning looked like on the farm this morning or what a typical day looks like? Sure. Well, today got here about 6.30, 7 a.m., uh, finished packing up some orders for restaurants in Nashville and for Demeter's Commons in Lebanon, Tennessee, which is a local grocery store. And then got out the walk behind tractor, uh, prepped some beds in our tunnels where we just pulled out tomatoes. And we're going to be getting kale and collards planted in there later today. And kind of just met with the whole team and sort of planned out the day. And now I'm here. Awesome. That sounds great. So how long does your growing season typically go until? We're growing 52 weeks out of the year. We have some different winter growing techniques that... I learned on some other farms in Colorado and New York that make a lot of things possible here that would never be possible in colder climates. And we kind of, more and more, I was just seeing that we could extend the season, have things over winter outdoors, and especially in like small, they call them caterpillar tunnels, mm-hmm. uh, they're sort of small greenhouses. And we decided last year we had a really small winter CSA. And it went really well. And this year, we're going to keep our full CSA going all winter long. And the the variety of what we're offering changes, of course. We're not offering tomatoes in the wintertime. We're not using any heated spaces. So it's all just things that can overwinter outdoors in Tennessee or just with a little protection from a greenhouse, but no heat can keep growing all winter long. Yeah, that's great. How long have you been doing the winter growing season? So I guess this is our second year doing it. Last year was a little bit of a test run with a, I think we had 13 members during the winter. And this year we'll be offering uh, 50 members every week. Have you noticed a significant growth in your CSA share over the years? We definitely saw a big uh, increase when the pandemic hit. People were just looking for local food. And we also had already set ourselves up to offer home delivery uh, if people wanted it. So 
that we were kind of just without knowing it had set, set ourselves up really well for what happened here. And it was good for us also, of course, restaurant, our restaurant sales were, I think supposed to be between 60 and 70% of our total sales this year. And it's probably 10 to 15%. What, when the year comes to an end, that's what it would be at. So we immediately upped our CSA offerings. That's definitely been the, the biggest, <laughs> the biggest gross, uh, biggest jump in our CSA that had nothing to do with us. Uh, but we've also, we're a young farm. This is our really our, only our second year doing C, full season doing a CSA. So we're still slowly growing into it and we'll probably continue to grow 20 to 30% for the next couple of years. Awesome. That's super cool. That's a good segue into, can you introduce a little bit about Caney Fork Farms? Like what's the origin story behind Caney Fork Farms? Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So Caney Fork Farms is on the family land of former Vice President Al Gore. And his grandfather purchased the land back in the early to mid 1940s. It's grown since then, but the, the heart of the farm is, is that piece of property that he had purchased. And historically they were raising uh, Black Angus cattle, a lot of show cows, they're breeding bulls that were, I think, won a lot of awards. And back in 2015, the farm started transitioning to Caney Fork Farms. And with that, it was trying to become a much more diversified operation and really implement and adapt the best management practices for the Southeast, bringing in research, production, and to become a model for other farms in the Southeast and to sort of innovate in some different ways. So for those who might not know, what is a best management practice? Best management practice is, it really can be anything. It's it's not specific to a particular practice, but it's just, and it's kind of, it's a question of what are your ultimate goals? So for us, our goals are raising the most nutritious food, in a way that replenishes the land and can be done again and again for generations. So the best management practices for us there might be different than somebody who has a piece of land and they're trying to get the highest yield that they can get that one year. You have to take a step back and wonder what your goals are. For us, it's uh, that ends up being rotational grazing with our animals. It ends up being uh, sort of minimum tillage practices with our vegetable growing. And for us also kind of trying to develop more perennial crops like chestnuts. So you focused a lot and I see a lot on your website. There's a really heavy focus on carbon farming. Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there, obviously we're in a climate crisis. That is the biggest issue is just the amount of carbon that has been released into the atmosphere. And we often think of that as burning petrochemicals, which of course is a big issue, but It also goes back to the amount of topsoil erosion that's occurred, especially in the United States, but all over the world. And there's so much carbon that is historically stored in the soil that with our farming practices over the past really only 100 years, using modern day synthetic chemicals and the invention of tractors, that we have been able to release this massive amount of carbon into the atmosphere from our topsoils. So for us, we're really trying to look at how do we get that carbon back into the soil? Because there's a lot of, forgetting about climate change even, there's a lot of, um, for long-term growing, if you want to produce food off the same piece of land, you really want that carbon in the soil. It will hold more nutrients in the soil. 
it provides it more physical structure so that if you have a big rain event, it's able to absorb more water and it won't erode as quickly. And it also promotes just more biological life. And more and more we're seeing, or the scientific community is finding that there is a difference between a synthetic chemical and a biologically derived chemical, let alone to say that like we will be running out of phosphorus reserves and other mined minerals that if we can't start figuring out how to have more closed loop systems, at some point our model is going to fall apart. For sure. And I think uh, especially back to what you were saying about reducing erosion and kind of protecting some of those resources that are on the land. But that's also just as important because your farm is, it's on the Caney Fork River, right? You have river frontage? Yeah, we actually, we're in an oxbow in the river. So we have about two and a half miles of riverfront property. Wow. Which is really wonderful at the end of the day to be able to jump in the river. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds awesome. I also read on your site that you kind of refer to the farm as a laboratory. So I think, you know, you have this like awesome CSA program, but it seems like there's also this really innovative goals of the farm to kind of, you know, really study and understand some of these practices better. Mm -hmm. What kind of things are you experimenting with in that laboratory setting? Yeah, absolutely. So back to the carbon story. We, it's one thing to recognize that we want to be putting more carbon into the soil than we're releasing through our farming practices. It's another thing to be able to measure that. And then with a, also a potential goal of their carbon markets that are booming all around the world, there's no agreed upon way of how to measure carbon in soil so that farmers could actually get subsidized for the carbon they're putting in the soil. At least in my opinion, it's at least in the short term, to switch over from sort of commodity commercial practices to practices that we're using, you often will see a dip in production, at least for a little while. You have additional goals you're trying to fulfill. So if we can pay farmers for the carbon they're putting into the soil, it gives them added incentive. It's essentially another crop that they're farming, but instead of something that they're growing, giving away, it's something that they're actually putting into their farm. And if we can pay them for that, then more and more people will be not only willing, because I think a lot of people are willing to do it, but they'll be capable of doing it because they'll have the money that they need to actually institute those practices. So we're working with a number of researchers from I think seven or eight different universities and private labs. One hand to just figure out what is a cheap, quick, and accurate way of measuring soil carbon so that there can become a standard way of measuring it that a carbon market could utilize so that farms all over the world could start measuring their carbon and then get money potentially for that carbon that they're putting in their soil. So that's really the first step in how to build that market. And then it's also the question of, okay, well then what practices are actually gonna put carbon into the soil? So working with satellite technologies, on the ground technologies, Uh, really, we're trying to assess the practices that we're using in transitioning from a more conventional operation to hopefully a sustainable regenerative operation. We're able to sort of track and say, okay, this is the trajectory that a farm could take in the Southeast. And these practices actually do not equate to higher carbon, but these practices do. Like we, we don't claim to know exactly what is best. So for us, kind of the best management is the best that we know of currently. And we're always trying to learn and figure out what, how we could do things better. And I really want to sort of hone in on that point of like us doing this in the Southeast, because the climate that we have here is very different than 
California or Utah or New York State. So what works here might not work elsewhere. And what might be the best management here might not be elsewhere, especially when you think about cattle, it's very different for us to be raising 100% grass-fed cows where we're not irrigating our pastures at all because we get 53 to 57 inches of rain versus a situation where you might be growing alfalfa in California that's irrigated with water from the Colorado River that's then shipped to Colorado <laughs> and fed to cows that are in a CAFO operation. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of nuance and it's very difficult to generalize in farming what are good, bad, and best management practices. For sure. And that's something that I think we've noticed too. And, and something that I hope that more research comes out on in the future. And I've also been in touch with some universities who are studying the impacts of conservation practices. Because I think when you're going to promote and try to convert some growers into these new practices that you know, measuring that impact kind of needs to be there. So what might a model for, you know, carbon farming look like? Is that businesses? Is that government like paying those subsidies? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I I think it's certainly all of the above. I think there, I think the sort of the small farm organic movement is really wonderful but I think it would be naive to think that that will be able to feed the entire country when you're comparing it to a system that is subsidized with billions of dollars every year from a long, I mean, since the, since the beginning of the NRCS, mm-hmm. the USDA, the farm bill, like, there's a lot of money that our government spends that goes to subsidize different farming practices. And I think we have to recognize that no one farmer is going to be able to do this by themselves and that my hope it would these this research would be subsidized by the government in the same way that different solar companies and renewable technology is i think we really need to push from the USDA to try to incentivize research and development of new practices and you are seeing that in some places there there's a um, university of missouri just hired somebody to become a chestnut breeder and they just received a USDA grant to try to identify the best genetics and do more breeding on the chestnut to reintroduce it as a food crop in the country. So I think, yeah, it works on all levels. And my hope it would certainly be transitioning to more and more perennial agriculture, especially from a carbon standpoint. By having a, a chestnut tree in the ground, you are putting so much more carbon into the soil, into the, the body of the tree itself, and you're not having to go in and till the ground every year and you're getting a real staple crop that you you can eat off of Um, and that could really replace a pretty significant portion of the wheat and barley and other grains that we grow in an annual way. Yeah, you're um, making me think about the conference that we actually met at in Arkansas was that uh, the Mark Shepard really focused on that with his book mm-hmm. Restoration Agriculture. I think it talks a lot about that and that, you know, using that perennial um, system to have like a longer a longer term impact on the land. I think mm-hmm. that was really yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think back to what you were saying about the carbon storage and capture and kind of this, you know, who's going to be incentivizing this and you know, do small farms make an impact? I think um, one of the big things that I see is that when we're talking about this climate crisis and 
you know, the amount of impact that we need to make in a short time. I think definitely acreage is a huge part of that. And so mm -hmm. I definitely see that as a priority for sure, is making sure that that large farms are taking the right steps. Mm -hmm. I totally grazed past this because I was so <laughs> excited to start asking you these questions, but can we backtrack for a second and talk about how you in um, particular got involved with Katie Fork Farms? Sure, yeah. I'm happy to talk about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been farming for seven or eight years now. I kind of fell into it going into my senior year of college. I'd always done a lot of outdoor education and couldn't find a full-time job through the university for that summer. And a friend of mine kind of offhandedly suggested that I go work for this farming professor. I did that and got to just be on the land, eat a lot of food and meet a lot of the farmers in that area and really fell in love with it and just didn't realize that there, I could have a life that sort of balanced the scientific nature of agriculture and then also like the, the manual labor and the sort of outdoorsy experience that you can get from it also. So I kind of put aside everything else I was doing for my senior year and finished my degree, but was working three or four days a week for a plant breeding professor and really just have run with it ever since and feel very grateful that I've just had really amazing mentors in the farming world and was able to work on a number of different farms. And eventually that led me to actually a different farm in Tennessee. So I moved to Tennessee about four years ago and was on a farm for about a year. And I had met a number of people at Caney Fork Farms during my time in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And I was getting, looking for other opportunities after a year and ran into them. And this position had just opened up and they invited me to come out and check out the farm and meet the whole team. And it's been three, three years now. And you said you've been at um, some different states. You've been up in New York. Is there something that you've seen in Tennessee that, that or in the Southeast that we do that other states haven't, haven't really jumped on the wagon of? I mainly grew up in New York and Iowa and I'll say the South has definitely surprised me in a lot of ways. There's been a lot more, a lot more diversity, a lot of really amazing farmers that I've met down here. A lot of just wonderfully quirky people who are living their lives and uh, really taking care of the land in a really amazing way that are not getting the, I guess, sort of within the farm world are not getting sort of like the fame of being farmers in that circuit. And yeah, there's, I think there's a really good and it's still growing like food scene down here. Uh, I think the restaurants in Nashville had a lot to do with it. One thing I've found here is that you can grow anything here, but almost everything will grow better somewhere else. <laughs> From just like the heat that we have and the, the fungal pressure in particularly, and just the amount of pests that I've experienced here that I've never quite seen anywhere else. Um, I mean, going back, it, like historically, like there's no real apple industry in Tennessee. And that was because at a certain point they realized, oh, if we can grow apples in New York and Michigan and Washington, we can just make a lot more money. There's way less disease pressure. It's a lot easier to do that. And slowly over time, a lot of the real commercial agriculture left to the point that there, I think there's only a couple of actual like vegetable plant breeders in like in the Tennessee University system whereas North Carolina who's our neighbor has probably one of the 
three or four biggest plant breeding universities in the country. I could, could be wrong about that, but there's, um, you definitely start to notice that like Michigan, North Carolina State, Cornell are the places where like all these plant breeders either went to school or are working now. And now I think there's a lot obviously of cattle and corn that and soy that's grown in Tennessee. But I think it's a state that can really grow a lot of its own food if there was a little bit more incentive to to grow on smaller scales that might not be able to compete 100% economically with California, which I mean, no one can really do that. But I think this is a region that really could feed itself in a big way. And just sort of even the three years I've been here, just seeing more and more farms pop up is just really exciting to see sort of that foundation being laid um, for the future. And to be able to withstand pandemics like this, where people have access to fresh local food. And I just read an absolutely horrifying article about how California is actually overdue for a massive flood, which is not something I'd ever associated with California. Right. And there hasn't, that flood hasn't happened since before it became this agricultural powerhouse for the entire country. And just thinking about what that would do to our grocery stores and what we saw like the runs on toilet paper when the pandemic first started luckily i mean toilet paper is very important but it's not going to keep us alive (laughs) whereas food really keeps us alive and if we have if we don't have that infrastructure to weather really big jolts to our food system then we could be in a lot of trouble definitely definitely i think it is a really key time to be talking about that too during this pandemic. I think we've seen a lot, and I was hoping to ask you this, you know, seeing what the patterns were of, of people starting to refocus their efforts on local food systems. Have you seen a significant shift in your consumers or people reaching out? Have you seen any, you know, notable patterns since the pandemic hit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we've had just way more people reaching out about CSAs and wanting local food. We're even like selling, we're going to be selling quarter and half shares of, uh, of some cows pretty soon. The whole pandemic has just brought people to think more locally and to, there's a security in that. And then there's also just a wholesomeness of, we can't be going to our neighborhood coffee shop or to our neighborhood restaurant in the same way that we were before. And eating locally provides this outlet for people to just have any sort of social interaction, at least during that like handoff of a box of vegetables or a bag of of different cuts of meat. And that's something I've heard from farmers across the country is that CSAs have really taken off and there's been, it's forced a lot of farmers to get a lot tech savvier than they had ever wanted to before. And people are figuring out new sort of new mechanisms of how do we get local food to customers. Uh, Some of that's home delivery. A lot of people have been sort of dragging their heels on offering home delivery before the pandemic because it just seems like something that, like a small farmer is not Amazon, like Amazon can do that, we can't. And all of a sudden we're realizing like, hey, the milkman used to do that all the time. And the milkman was a very local, small business oriented model. And I think farms are starting to pick up more on that. We offer home delivery all along Highway 40, and then most of Nashville, we offer home delivery. So what would your local food system radius kind of look like? Is there a certain distance that you're willing to go? 
we are we're mainly focused on Smith County, so Carthage, and then Wilson County in Lebanon, and primarily Denver's Commons, and we offer CSA pickup there as well. And then in Nashville, I don't know if I guess on a theoretical, like how local is local. I don't know if I have a really good answer. I think it kind of depends on where you are and all of that. I've got a friend who's doing like a local food challenge that they're going to spend 30 days only consuming local, oh, like nice. regional food, I guess. And I think they're setting it at a 200 or 250 mile radius, which I think came, uh, Barbara Kingsolver wrote a book about her family doing that. And I think they set that 250 mile radius. Yeah, I really like that idea. I feel like that's a challenge that, you know, we could definitely challenge people to do still, even now. Thanks to the supporters of the Cumberland River Compact who help bring our podcast to listeners. We would also like to thank the Ryman Hospitality Properties Foundation. Do you know what lives in your local creek? Through the support of the Ryman Hospitality Properties Foundation, the Cumberland River Compact brings our program Creek Critters to schools across Middle Tennessee, showing kids what a healthy and thriving aquatic ecosystem looks like. So um, thinking about the future, I'm going back to what you said about this pandemic really forcing people to grow in ways not only you know not only might farmers be trying to prioritize and implement new and sustainable practices but they're also challenged with this model of scale and and growing and meeting this new demand how do you see like caney fork farms playing a role as maybe a model for other farms or you know any any tips or or plans that you have in the works to kind of meet that scale demand? First and foremost, we're, again, we're a young farm um, and we're not, we're not at a point where I think we have proven the viability. We're, we're in the process of proving the viability of a lot of the things we're doing. A lot of the things we're doing are being done by other farmers with, that have been around for 20 plus years elsewhere. And you definitely point to certain practices, but sort of the whole package that we're trying to prove is going to take a few years to sort of put together all the data, uh, both economic and scientific, to really make the points that we want to. So I, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself in saying that like we've done all these things and everyone can do exactly what we're doing in their own way. And But I think there's a lot of really interesting models that are growing up around the country right now that I think we would love to take part in in the future and uh, potentially spearhead. Regional Chestnut Cooperative is something that uh, has been battered around within the farm that we're, again, we're not at a point yet in our own production to be able to do that, but is something that we've definitely seen around the country. Um, in Ohio, there's Route 9 cooperatives. Uh, there's another one in Missouri or Iowa that's a chestnut cooperative. And there's a, a third one that's about to take form in Pennsylvania or New York, uh, for like the Northeast. There's an amazing elderberry co-op that's based out of Missouri, River Hills Harvest. Uh, so I think that co-op model is really important. And one thing I hear a lot of those growers talking about in a way that I don't hear sort of small vegetable farmers talking is like they're looking and saying, hey, the U.S. is importing, uh, making this number up, but 10 tons of elderberries every year from Europe. So we have 10 tons of market demand 
that we can get. And we like, there's no reason why we should be importing this before we can offer it ourselves. So a lot of them are looking at it from a much larger scale in thinking about what is the real growth potential of chestnuts, elderberries, uh, hazelnuts is another one that new breeds out of Rutgers that just came out that are really exciting. The equipment that you need in order to get perishable goods from California all over the country, like let alone the fact that like, I want to grow a tomato until it's red and then give it to someone for them to eat and enjoy, not grow a tomato until it's green and then have it artificially ripened in a climate controlled truck that's moving across the country. In my mind, actually, I think vegetables, the best way to do vegetables is to keep it pretty local. I think from both an economic standpoint, from a sustainability standpoint, I think vegetables are sort of somewhat of an inherent evil in our food system. I mean, we have chosen to develop annual weeds as our primary food source. So in annual weeds grow in disturbed soil. So we have bred these food sources to that want to grow in disturbed soils. So we have to continue to give them disturbed soils. And I think that the more responsible way to do that is to do it on smart, smaller scales. Doesn't mean it has to be a third of an acre market garden that can look like a 10 acre field, but that 10 acre field can be set up with sort of roadways in between. So you don't have continuous tillage over a long area. It's on land that historically does not flood. So you don't have risk of erosion. If it's on some hillsides like ours are planting on contour to try to minimize the amount of water that can wash out your, your beds. And, and then you're also just minimizing the, the carbon that it takes to transport that food from one place to another for this really perishable crop. And then I think there's other sort of what I hope will become more commodity crops like elderberries, chestnuts, hazelnuts that I think make a lot more sense to consolidate, aggregate, and then create these companies potentially that will be sort of the public face of what might be hundreds or thousands of farms in the same way that Organic Valley is a co-op or even Ocean Spray. Like that's actually a model that a lot of chestnut growers and, and other perennial growers are looking at of how did they, I don't know the details of them, but from what I've heard, like they have pretty good treatment of the farmers, pretty good pay. I think the way it's structurally set up is economically viable for both Ocean Spray as a company and then also the farmers who are growing into it. So thinking about scaling in that way, I think is going to be really important. Especially for things that probably do well here anyways, right? I think it's just crazy to think that we're importing things that Mm -hmm. would do well here anyways. Yep. And it's even crazier when you think about there's so much that we we export soybeans to China, but then also buy soybeans back from China. And why are we, <laughs> and we're paying shipping both ways. Like what's the, I, I just don't, I understand the, the economics or I, the economics. That's kind of the issue is the economics are incentivized. So that, that makes sense. But there's something so illogical about doing that, that needs to change from a policy level in order for that to not economically make sense. Yeah, and I think those, um, you know, those same perennials can also be really integrative into, you know, like a resiliency model and even, even, you know, trying to incorporate practices that help protect stream banks or, you know, 
those types of crops can can really I think be beneficial in those settings as well. So there's definitely a multitude of benefits, which kind of makes me think about you know when we're talking about the future and some of the even now seeing some of these like really wild changing weather patterns that we're seeing. We're seeing flashier floods, longer, drier, flashier droughts. Um, how can some of these regenerative practices help prepare us to deal with some of these more sporadic weather conditions that we might see in the future? A great resource is, uh, is actually the keynote speaker at the SOG conference that we met at. Laura, I'm going to get her last name wrong, but first name is Laura and she wrote, uh, she wrote a book that is she was supposed to come out with a, an updated version, I think in October, called Resilience Agriculture. Agricultural Resilience uh, might be the name, but is just a really wonderful sort of snapshot of a number of different farms and how different practices that they've used have helped them build resiliency and weather really catastrophic events. By putting more carbon in the soil, you're increasing like the soil's water holding capacity so it can withstand greater amounts of rainfall, especially larger rainfall. Um, you look at the infiltration measurement is how much water can a cubic foot or yard of soil hold onto in a certain amount of time. And we'll try to put a link up of like videos of some of those. And it's just shocking to see how much water really healthy soil can hold versus sterile dead soil. The water just runs right through it and takes most of the soil away with it. So I think there's an inherent sort of resilience in building the, the health of the soil that will come from it. Having really healthy stream banks help prevent flooding. Having perennialized agriculture puts you at a much lower risk because you're not at risk of all of your entire investment just like eroding away or blowing away. Obviously, trees can be taken down also by big weather events, but the damage is usually a lot less than if you're in a, a cornfield and I mean, seeing the photos of like derecho, what the derecho did in Iowa to just miles of cornfields was just pretty horrifying to see and really and heartbreaking to see that happen. I think there's a level of, we have to be prepared for these just wild events. And some of that means is diversifying so that I'm not putting my entire economic outlook in just corn or just soybeans. And it's not even just like, I've, I grew up, we grow, I mean, 50 to 90 different vegetables every year. So like there's diversity in there, but there's also diversity in our farm as a whole where we might have an event that might take out most of our vegetable operation, but we still have meat and we can sell, continue to sell meat. And then we're, we'll, we have some chestnuts now, but that will continue to just as it comes into maturity, will become like a real actually like production and economic powerhouse for us. So by just having all of these different sort of economic resources and just things that are very, just so inherently different and can weather, like some are better at weathering droughts, others are better at weathering floods. And by us having all of that within our own farm really enables us to weather different catastrophic events in a way that other farms might not be able to. So diversity is key. Mm -hmm. Diversity and then also going back to like local, I think is so key. Right. Um, it's not, it's not great if all of our food is grown in just one state. People should be thinking about how do, how do you take back more and more food production uh, into regional and local type systems. 
is there a way that Caney Fork Farms addresses food inequalities or food deserts? I know we could probably spend a lot of time on that topic, but if there's anything quickly you could say to that, that'd be good to know. We donate food to a local women's shelter every week. We provide them a free CSA box and flowers whenever we have. Uh, then whenever we have larger quantities of extras that we can't sell, we'll donate them to National Food Project or National Rescue Mission. I don't know if it constitutes a food desert, but we really do strive to keep as much of our food as local as possible. Most of our food, the majority of it at least, is does go into Nashville, but a lot of farms, it's it's hard to sell locally and provide good access. You kind of have to go where the larger customer base is, which is often the urban centers. And we're really trying to make sure that we're not, don't treat this as flyover country, I guess, and just grow the, this amazing food here and bring it right to Nashville, but really make sure that uh, the people who are here in Smith County and Wilson County kind of have first dibs on it if they're interested in it. Obviously, there's a much bigger uh, food justice conversation happening right now that is way overdue here on the farm. This will be the second year that we have a conference. Uh, this will be this year will be a virtual conference because of the pandemic. And a lot of the conference will be focused on food justice issues and how do we build a more just food system post-COVID. For anyone who's looking for more resources, uh, we, we are primarily focused on the growing aspect. And there are other people who are really spearheading a lot of this work in the food justice realm. Locally, uh, Trap Garden does amazing community gardens, Turk, uh, Tennessee Immigrant Refugee Coalition, Casa Azafran, Listen the Trash Plants, you can find them on social media and they are rehoming uh, all sorts of plants and food and giving first dibs to queer and BIPOC people, really kind of filling an amazing niche in Nashville. More nationally, A Growing Culture did a series called Hunger for Justice. And it's a really incredible jumping off point for anyone who's really looking to dive into uh, the racial justice component of our food system and also how we can move forward and make a more just system. So I really highly recommend that. And for people who are real foodies and subscribe to a bunch of culinary magazines, I'd highly recommend Whetstone Magazine. Uh, they also have a podcast and a journal online and are doing an amazing job of really highlighting food origins and cultures and centering the people who are at the front lines of our food industry um, in a really incredible way and doing it all through a culinary aspect that a lot of people, I think, would really appreciate. Awesome. So anything we can look forward to from Caney Fork Farms in 2021? Any big plans? Yeah, we're we're just going to be growing. It's kind of I think we've laid a really good foundation um, from the vegetable CSAs and selling to restaurants to our our herds of haven't mentioned pigs at all <laughs> this whole time. We have, uh, pigs, cattle, and sheep that we raise on the property, and we're growing our herds every year. And then our chestnut orchards are just going to be producing more and more nuts every year, and it's just going to become a more and more exciting thing. So. Right now, is a, we'll be selling chestnuts online starting mid to late September. And in our mind, this is the perfect time to just start getting acquainted with chestnuts so that when we start having hundreds of thousands of pounds, everyone is just ready to go and knows all their chestnut recipes and everything they want to do with it. Yeah, so that's really exciting. That's just one you don't hear about commonly. I'm, I'm very, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll make sure to get you some. <laughs> so if I wanted to get like 
a meet share for people who don't know what that looks like. What is that a monthly thing? Are you buying a share of the animal itself? Like what can you explain just quickly what that looks like? Mm -hmm. So we have, we do have some like the quarter half cows. You're actually buying a live cow and then having it processed yourself, but that is not our primary meat CSA. Primary meat CSA is, as you said, it's a monthly delivery that you can pick up from a few central locations around Nashville and uh, Lebanon, or we'll deliver it to your house as well. And there's different size shares. You can sort of customize it and it'll rank your preferences. And then you can also go in and say, you know what, I don't want that sausage this week. I want some more filet mignon or something like that. And so you can, uh, you have access to all three species of animal that we raise and, but you can pick and choose if you, don't like pork or or don't eat pork and just want beef and beef and lamb. So make sure to join the newsletter probably to stay updated on any of those. Yeah. And all that information will definitely be on the website as well. Closing it out. We are asking every interviewee, uh, what is something that you recommend? We intentionally left this very open. So it could be (laughs) a book, a podcast, a habit that you do in the morning, just anything that you want to recommend to the audience. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll throw out two different things, if that's okay. Uh, sure. The first is just to get on a river because it's wonderful. I, we live right between the Cumberland and the Caney Fork River. So I spend a lot of time fishing and kayaking and just swimming. And I think that's, again, just to feel more connected to the natural ecosystem that you live in. And in Tennessee, a lot of that is rivers. And I think it's really just the most beautiful aspect of Tennessee I've encountered since living here. And it's been really special just having that at my fingertips. And the second thing is a book that I just finished rereading during the pandemic. It's called Emerald Mile. And Mm -hmm. it's about the fastest boat run through the Grand Canyon that ever happened, which coincides with a lot of river stuff, obviously, and the Hoover Dam almost broke, and that was what led to it, and it's a wild story that also just gives you, like, a really great history of the Grand Canyon and the building of the dams and sort of just water in the West, and really enjoyable book, and I think uh, if you like sort of outdoor adventure and then also some, like, natural history, it's a really good read. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to include that. Well, thank you so much. This was, this was a really great conversation, and i I'm hoping that we get to explore a lot of these topics that we covered today in in more depth in the future. So what's the rest of your afternoon look like? We'll be planting collards and prepping more beds and getting a lot of weeding. We've finally stopped raining and I think it's supposed to stay that way for the next few days. So we have a lot of weeding to catch up on. Well, good luck and thank you again so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you to Renan for joining us on this episode of River Talks. Through the Cumberland River Compact's River Friendly Farms program, we support agricultural best practices that promote healthy soils and healthy waters. We are excited to have great examples of these practices like Caney Fork Farms in our region. If you are interested in supporting Caney Fork Farms, they still have spots available in their Winter Vegetable CSA and Meat CSA. They have also launched orders for chestnuts. You can find more information at caneyforkfarms.com. Want to add your thoughts about this week's episode? Send us an email at rivertalks at cumberlandrivercompact.org or leave us a voice message at 615-933-8800.
8837. Until next time, I'm Katherine Price and hope you can join us for more River Talks.